0: Something that I wanna share today, I guess most of what I wanna share, uh, I'm concerned that it's gonna hit us a little sideways, that it's gonna kinda cut across the grain of what we are used to hearing around Easter, but isn't that how the gospel always works? That it just, it comes at us a little sideways and we have to kinda sit with it and marinate in it for a while before it really starts to make sense to us. In the film, The Big Lebowski, (laughs) Father Chris references Terrence Malick, Tree of Life, Father Paul gives you, the dude abides. In this movie, there's this scene where the dude and Walter, Donnie, characters you're all familiar with, they're all leaving the bowling alley And as they're leaving, they find the dude's car is on fire. And there are a few men standing in the parking lot ready to confront them. And Donnie says to Walter, are these Nazis? And Walter says, no Donnie, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. (laughs) If you need that joke to be explained to you, come see me after service. What I wanna share with us today, it might sound a little bit like that. It might sound a little nihilistic, but I promise there is good news to be found in it somewhere. Hopefully, maybe by the end of this, we'll be able to hear how exactly this is good news for us. If, uh, if you're taking notes today, and I know many of you are, um, I've, I've at least told myself that the title of this sermon is The Purposeless Driven Life. And you can just file that away. What we see happening after the resurrection is so disorienting. And here we are in this season of Easter. By the way, Easter is a season, not just a single day that we celebrate. We're in this 50-day stretch now up until the season of Pentecost, up until the day of Pentecost, called Tide, And this is all of us starting to understand and get oriented to what it means to actually live in the resurrection. And it turns out, as I've said, it's disorienting. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I wanna kinda wrestle through today What is that lack of sense, that lack of understanding, that disorientation that we find ourselves in? And at least part of what I want us to see is that life, for the most part, has no real purpose. At least in the way that we think about purpose, right? Before I forget, let me jump over to the book of Acts and this is our New Testament reading for today. And this is something of the disorientation I wanna talk about. If you look at the book of Acts, these are the first days, the first moments after the ascension. Christ is risen, he comes and he eats and drinks among them, he's with his disciples, and then he ascends, and now they're just kind of left to figure out what do we do now. And this is what happens. I'm only five chapters in, and actually this week I thought five chapters, it'd be good to like get oriented to like what exactly has happened so far in the book of Acts up until this point. And it's not good news. Um, let's just go through some of the section titles that our Bibles give us, right? We have the Ascension, great. We have the Disciples United in Prayer, wonderful. We have Pentecost, even better. We have the Healing of a Lame Man, beautiful. Peter and John are arrested. Peter and John have a trial in front of the Jewish leadership. We have them being told that the name of Jesus is forbidden. We have uh, the whole story about lying to the Holy Spirit. We have in and out of prison, which gives you a sense of just the rhythms of the, (laughs) the life of the disciples and the apostles, right? We have the apostles on trial again, and that's where we find ourselves. Second time on trial. It says, after they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. Notice they don't mention Caesar. They don't mention Pilate. They're strictly talking to these leaders saying you had him murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. If that text hits you funny, good. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So for the disciples, the apostles, all of us, it turns out that the resurrection didn't really change a whole lot. It it didn't resolve much in their lives. It actually created a whole lot of confusion and, and chaos and our Bible heading, in and out of prison, things didn't feel very uplifting. The world didn't feel resurrected to the first followers of Jesus. So for them, nothing has changed, but everything has changed. And part of the challenge that we have, part of us sorting through life as we know it, is learning what has changed because everything for us has changed, but when we look around, it seems like nothing has changed. We live in a society that, we're familiar, we're oriented to the marketplace. We know what it is to be sold things. Everyone is trying to sell you something and the basis on which they try to sell that thing to you is that your life will be happier, you will be better off, you will be more successful, you will be richer if you have this. Be it a car or a computer or a microwave or a fancy new soap, whatever the thing is, You're being promised that on some level, your life is going to be better. And if we're not careful, and I think we haven't been careful, at least in most of the communities that we've all been raised in, we haven't been careful in not usurping religion into that very same marketplace of saying your life, you will be happier and you will be more successful, you will be richer if you just do this, if you just believe this. But what we see for the apostles, what we we see for the disciples, what we see for members of the early church, what you and I have seen in our own lives is that that's not true. (laughs) It's not true. And so, part of what we have to sort out is what is the meaning? What is the purpose? What is the thing that our spirituality, that being Christian actually offers us? Fleming Rutledge has this wonderful line where she says, the Son of God did not come to make good people better, but to give life to the dead. The promise of Christianity, the promise of the Gospels, the promise that Jesus leaves with us is not that our lives are going to get better. It's not that by believing in the right things and by doing the right things you will be happier or you will be successful or you will be richer. It's interesting. Much of uh, Latin America where we've seen churches exploding, the thing that they've hinged the gospel on is you'll be richer. In places of deep, deep poverty, we've sold people a spirituality that says this will actually enrich your life. Now, hear me, and again, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. This, This doesn't mean that our lives are not better that our lives aren't benefiting in some way by the gospel, just not in the ways that we think they're benefiting. If, if we believe at all what I'm saying today, what we end up experiencing is more of a kind of void, a kind of emptiness in our souls. And something that we're meant to see today from the story of Thomas, from the life and the rhythm of the disciples, is that in those places of emptiness, if they're they're well maintained, if they're purposefully kept empty, if, if the void isn't avoided, as we might say, that is the space where God enters into our lives and the glory of God is realized. But here's the thing is that we don't know what it is to leave that void. We don't know what it is to leave it perfectly unfulfilled. And so what do we do? We run after meaning and we run after purpose and ambition and success. All of these things that we think give our lives meaning. All of these things that add value to who we are and to what we're doing and why we exist in the world. And part of the beauty of the gospels is this simple idea that we have nothing left to do. The beauty of the gospel is that there is nothing left for you to accomplish, which means what? You can simply abide in the love of Jesus and be fulfilled in that space. That by not finding all of your value and your meaning and your purpose in your success, God might actually move into your life and you can learn to delight in life and to delight in the world as we move in it. There's this text in Colossians 2, this is Paul, and it's, A beautiful text, it's a short text, it's one you probably want to memorize. And it just says this, you are complete in Christ. You are complete in Christ. There is nothing out there for you that if you do the thing or achieve that level of success, any promotion that you might be able to find, there's nothing you can do that makes you more than who you are right now because you are complete in Christ. Now, does that mean that goals and ambitions and dreams, that those things aren't good? No, but we should ask ourselves why? We should ask ourselves why are we adding these things to our life? Is it because we are delighting in them or are we trying to convince ourselves or maybe convince others that we can become more than who we are? The good news is that you are complete in Christ. Now, here's the other twist, is that complete people do things. When you realize that you are whole as a person, that there's nothing that you need to add to make you more of who you are, you can start to live and be intentional and do things in the world. But it means that you can live and exist and run after things and do things in your world without the risk of believing that those things make you somehow more. Am I making sense? Whole people do things, and they can risk things that people who find themselves or believe themselves to be deficient can't do. They can give of themselves in ways that don't start to hinder their self-esteem. They can give themselves, give of themselves in ways that actually bring joy to their life and to the life of other people not to earn anything, not to accomplish something, not out of competition, but from a place of being. Remembering that we are human beings, not just human doings. Part of what we have to unlearn is our orientation to this marketplace society that we live in and that we know because so much of our orientation to the world as the marketplace means that we need some kind of competition. We need to accomplish in order to see who are we better than and who are we worse than that we're still aspiring to be like. And what we find in the resurrected world is that we're not in competition with anyone. We don't have to try and outdo one another. Remember, this is one of the things that the disciples get caught up in all the time, trying to figure out who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom and what does Jesus say to them? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Everything that we think we know about success and achievement and competition, Jesus turns it all upside down so we, once we learn and know what it is to be whole, we can exist in the world and we can go and do and accomplish in ways that don't set us in competition with our neighbor. In ways that allow us to still see our neighbors as human because this is what competition does to us. It, it causes us to start to see other people just as roadblocks. Or some kind of inhumane other force in our life that just needs to be overcome. But in the world of resurrection, in the world that Christ invites us into, there is no sense of competition because our neighbors are human beings and they're meant to be loved and they're meant to be cared for. Dorothy Sayers, some of you will be familiar with her, she wrote this really beautiful essay called Why Work? And in this essay, if you've ever read it, you know that she talks about the church's orientation to people who work. All of you work. You do something. And she says, most of what the church tells people to do is not to be drunk, not to be disorderly, don't smoke, and go to church. And then she says, that doesn't touch the other nine-tenths of people's lives. The, The space in your world where you go off to work and your dinners with friends and your bedtimes with your kids, the church has said nothing to all of those spaces. And so she says that the church's first admonishment to anybody, say it's a carpenter, shouldn't be don't get drunk, don't be disorderly, don't smoke, go to church on Sundays. She says the very first thing that the church ought to tell people is if you're a carpenter, you better make good tables. You better engage in the work that you do as work that you're doing before God. This is what we mean when we talk about parsing through the meaning and the purpose of our lives. Whatever it is that you do, whatever it is you, you give your hands and your energy to, we ought to do it before God. Not out of competition, not out of try, not trying to achieve something or to earn something that needs to be given to us. You are a whole person. You are complete in Christ, which means whatever we do, we do before God. She says, later on in this essay, she says, what good is religion if you insult God with bad tables? I love that. So what does this look like? What does it look like for us to just exist in the world? Kind of setting aside goals of purpose and trying to search for for meaning Knowing that we can set all of those things aside. What does, what does this look like? Knowing that we exist in ways and we work in ways that just try to bring glory to God. This week I um, had a moment. A lot of you join us for our, our morning and our evening prayers that we, we do day in, day out, 8 a.m., 9 p.m. And because I'm not very disciplined, our kids' bedtimes kind of creep later and later into the evening as the, as the week goes on. So like their seven o'clock bedtime becomes like 9.15 bedtime by Friday. And it was Thursday night and it was time for prayer. It was 9 p.m. and I still hadn't gotten our three-year-old to sleep. And I was in his room and I'm hopping onto the prayer call and he's in his bed, I'm in his chair, I've got the prayer call pulled up on my phone, and he just pulls out a book. He's three, he doesn't know how to read. Pulls out a book and starts reading it. (laughs) And if you've ever seen a three-year-old try to read, you know that it's less about words and more about like the animation of what's happening. So I'm sitting there and prayer begins, and here's my son and I'm just delighting in what he's doing. I'm just enthralled with his confidence and his imagination and his creativity and just being who he is while I'm here with the people of God. I think that's something of what our lives, the form and the shape of our lives could look like. That we're here and we're together We are the people of God and we've come for no real reason or no real purpose. There's no no benefit that you're going to walk out of here with other than you've encountered the people of God and you've come to the table to receive the body and blood of Christ. We receive what we are in the Eucharist and then we go out and delight in the world. I think this is... The shape that our lives could take if we have the imagination to resist meaning and purpose in the best ways, trying to add all of those things onto our lives to make us more than who we are. But you are complete in Christ. If you've never read Ecclesiastes, don't do it today. Do it when the sun's out. <laughs> but it begins, those of you who are familiar with the text, the Coelette, the teacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, he opens with, or she opens with, we don't know, opens with these words, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Other translations say vapor, vapor. Everything is Vapor. Part of what I think the wisdom of that text offers us meaningless, meaningless, vapor, vapor is that whatever part of your life you're working on trying to fill with work, with friends, with success, with relationships. Whatever that thing is, we can leave it perfectly unfilled. Meaningless, meaningless, can feel less like a threat and more like a promise when we hear it in light of the gospel. That void in your life, again, doesn't need to be avoided. This void, whatever that void is, you can embrace it that space that empty space can be the space where god moves in this is something of what we see in the life of thomas notice that he feels like the other disciples have something that he doesn't and that creates this sense of emptiness this sense of questioning in his life, And what I love about this story is that even when the other disciples tell Thomas what's happened, and even when he doesn't believe them, he doesn't leave the disciples. And the disciples don't prevent him from gathering with them. There's doubt. There's confusion. There's uncertainty. There's a sense that you have something that I don't have that I wish I had. And you know what? I'm just going to keep showing up with you. I'm gonna continue to come back into the room. And it's interesting that that Thomas doesn't try to fill it with a whole bunch of other explanations. He doesn't try to come up with some other solution. They're like, oh, this is what you really saw. Maybe this is what really happened. He just says, I don't know. But I'm gonna stick around until I do figure it out. And then, of course, we know Jesus enters in the locked room he doesn't stand at the door and knock he just comes and he's among them and the story that we have the story of doubting thomas that void that he left unfilled that doubting actually makes room for our faith to be possible We have this story precisely because Thomas said, hold on a second, I don't know what this is, but I'm not gonna rush to other conclusions. I'm gonna leave that void perfectly empty. It doesn't need to be avoided, we can name it. Maybe a lot of you have shown up even today, even among the people of God, you've shown up with some kind of doubt, or question or uncertainty. Good news, you're in a room with a whole bunch of people who have felt the exact same way. Some days, you're just lucky to wake up and believe most of what we believe. (laughs) But you show up, you make yourself available and know that you are welcome and you're invited in and we wait to see maybe Jesus will show up even in this locked room the doors aren't locked by the way that used to be this was a fun story I've got a couple minutes for this Uh, so a lot of you know I'm fourth generations pastor's kid and grew up in a not a huge city I mean a couple hundred thousand people but uh our our church often ended up in the news I don't know why I don't know why, but one of the stories that went around this is I don't know why I'm telling you this. One of the stories that went around about our church was that we used to lock our doors until everyone had given in the offering. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? And of course, it's not true, but then you go, well... <laughs> Jesus shows up and he speaks peace to them. He speaks peace. And part of the reason why Jesus has to speak peace into the lives of the people who knew him best, even as he makes himself known to them after the resurrection, is because they're still living in that disorientation. That resurrection life, means that the world starts to come undone as we know it. And so here are the disciples, they're living in this disorientation, they're living in this space where things are coming apart. And part of what happens, and we see this in Acts, remember what they said while they're on trial, that they've gone from cowering in fear like we see with Thomas and the other disciples, to now they're on trial and they're not cowering in fear. Now they're in a space where they're starting to become accusatory. They're making these thundering accusations. You were the ones who murdered him. And of course that's not true. These people that they've put on trial, this isn't true. They're not the ones who murdered Jesus. But still, there's something in them, there's something that this spirit of competition, this needing to be right, this disorientation of resurrection hasn't really settled in to their hearts and bones yet, and so they're lashing out this is why Jesus has to speak peace to them. And if we're not careful in this kind of disorientation, while we're trying to find meaning and purpose and how do we add something to our lives, when we realize that there's nothing left to add because you are complete in Christ, when we start to put away things like meaning and purpose in the worst sense, what, what might happen if we're not careful? and I think what we're seeing happen in a lot of spaces is that in order to find meaning and to find purpose, we feel like we have to engage in some kind of culture war. We feel like we need to become the people who are defending what's right. And we start to take this posture like we find in Acts 5 with the disciples where we go from cowering to accusation And somewhere between there, Jesus has come and promised peace to us. Peace to us. We're naturally searching for things that make our lives meaningful. We are, as human beings, we're meaning makers. It's how we make sense of the world. But the resurrection says that the only meaning left to find is joy in the life of the resurrection that Jesus has made possible. That's it. That's all there is for us to engage in, is joy in the life that Christ has made possible for us. It's just delight in the world and in one another. Does that mean from this moment on, life is gonna be roses? No. If you've been alive for five minutes, no. But what does it mean? Again, that void doesn't have to be avoided. It means, think about this, Jesus, in his resurrected body, doesn't raise anybody else from the dead. He doesn't, he doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't raise anybody from the dead in his resurrected body. I could say this all day. What does he do? He eats and he drinks and he makes food for his friends. Jesus shows up and makes them breakfast. <laughs> the resurrected Christ just shows up and is like, do you have some fish? Why? Why doesn't he continue doing this work of raising people from the dead, of righting all of our wrongs? This is what we wait for Jesus to do. Why isn't he doing it? It's because when he was raised out of the grave, he raised everything and everyone out of the grave. So that the world that we live in, the world that you and I live and move and have our being, this world is a world that is truly free of death. It doesn't mean that we don't experience it. It just means that it's not the realest thing about your life. Most of us, we go about our days and our weeks, we get into these humdrum rhythms of our lives of waking up and eating breakfast and going to work, taking kids everywhere. (laughs) And what happens to us over time is we start to think that all of these things, including all of the painful moments of our lives, all of the unfortunate doctor's appointments, and the bad news from friends, and the constant barrage of bad news on the news, that somehow this is the realest thing. And we think that, well, resurrection life, the life that Jesus promises us, is just this thing that's gonna peek into our lives every once in a while. That we're waiting on the fullness of it to come. But that's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is that the resurrection life is the realest thing. It is the thing beneath all the other things. It is the thing on which all the rest of our life happens. So that even as our lives go through these humdrum rhythms, the mundane Tuesday afternoon coffee, whatever that monotony looks like is somehow charged with resurrection It means it can just be something that you delight in. Why? Because it's the present moment. It's the gift that God has given you right now. And all of that other stuff, all of the bad news from doctors and our friends that are dying, we grieve it and we hate it, but we know that it's not the realest thing about the life that we live. This is the hope we have. And here's even better news that Christ has descended to all of the depths we can imagine, so that wherever we find ourselves, we know we're not alone. This is part of the purpose of the ascension. We say this in the Creed week after week after week, he descended to the dead. And then two lines later, he ascended into heaven so that no matter where you find yourself, you cannot escape the presence of Jesus. That's the promise of our lives. Not that things are going to go well. Not that there's anything left for you to achieve or success for you to find or things to add to your life. It's that wherever you find yourself, There's God. Jesus doesn't raise anyone from the dead because he has already raised everything and everyone. You are complete in Christ, and that's good news. Amen.